There was four. More. They were all covered with hair, but he was at least eight feet tall. Daylight found him in a small valley encircled by cliffs. This was home for a family of these creatures. He was able to escape after six days. Now let's listen to Mr. Osman's experience. It was 1924. I've always followed logging and construction work. This time I had worked over one year on a construction job and thought a good vacation was in order. British Columbia is famous for lost gold mines, and there's one supposed to be at the head of the Toba Inlet. I thought, why not look for this mine and have a vacation at the same time? When I got there, I hired an old Indian to take me to the head of the Toba Inlet. This old Indian was a very talkative old gent. He told me stories about gold brought out by a white man from this lost mine. This white man was a very heavy drinker, spent his money freely in the saloons, but he had no trouble in getting more money. He would be away a few days, then come back with a bag of gold. But one time, he went to his mine, and he never came back. Came back. Some people said a Sasquatch had killed him. At that time, I had never heard of Sasquatch, so I asked what kind of an animal he called a Sasquatch. The Indian said, They have hair all over their bodies, but they are not animals. They are people, big people living in the mountains. My uncle saw the tracks of one that were two feet long. One old Indian saw one over eight feet tall. I told the Indian I didn't believe in their old fables about mountain giants. It might have been some thousands of years ago, but not nowadays. The Indian said, There may not be many, but they still exist. We arrived at the head of the inlet later that afternoon. The Indian had supper with me, and I told him to look out for me in about three weeks. I'd be camping at this same spot when I came back. My equipment consisted of one 3030 Winchester rifle. I had a special homemade prospecting pick. My grub consisted mostly of canned stuff, except for a side of bacon, a bag of beans, four pounds of prunes, and six packets of macaroni. I had two boxes of shells for my rifle, three rolls of snuff, and two one-pound cans of milk. My sleeping bag I rolled up and tied on top of my pack sack. The following morning, I had an early breakfast made up my pack, and started out up this hogback trail. My pack must have been at least 80 pounds besides my rifle. After one hour, I had to rest. I kept resting and climbing all that morning. I must have been up near a 1,000 feet. There was a most beautiful view over the islands and the strait. Tugboats with log booms and fishing boats going in in all directions. I spent the following day prospecting around, but no sign of minerals. The following morning, I started out early, while it was still cool. It was a steep climb with my heavy pack, but after three hours, I was tired and stopped to rest. Now I had downhill and good going, but I was hungry and tired, so I camped at the first bunch of trees I came to. I was trying to size up the terrain and figure out what direction I would take from here. Two days later, I found an exceptionally good campsite. It was two good-sized cypress trees growing close together and near a rock wall with a nice spring just below these trees. I intended to make this my permanent camp. I cut lots of brush for my bed between these trees. I rigged up a pole from the rock wall to hang my pack on 
and I arranged some flat rocks for my fireplace for cooking. I had a really classy setup. And this is when things began to happen. Now, I'm a heavy sleeper. Not much disturbs me after I go to sleep. The next morning, I woke up and noticed things had been disturbed during the night, but nothing was missing. That night, I filled up the magazine of my rifle. I still had one full box of 20 shells and six shells in my coat pocket. I laid my rifle under the edge of my sleeping bag. I thought a porcupine had visited me the night before. And porkies like leather, so I put my shoes in the bottom of my sleeping bag. Next morning, my pack had been emptied out. Someone had turned the sack upside down. But it was still hanging on the pole from the shoulder straps as I'd hung it up. Then, I noticed one half-pound package of prunes was missing. Also, my pancake flour was missing, but my salt bag was not touched. Porky's always look... God, he keeps on calling porcupines porkies, and it's amazing. Porky's always look for salt, so I decided it must be something else. I looked for tracks, but found none. I didn't think it was a bear. They always tear up and make a mess of things. I kept close to camp these days in case this visitor would come back. One afternoon, I climbed up on a big rock where I had a good view of the camp, but nothing showed up. I was hoping it would be a porky, so I would get a good porky stew. These visits had now been going on for three nights. This last night, it was cloudy, and it looked like it might rain. I took special notice of how everything was arranged. I closed my pack, I didn't undress, I only took off my shoes, put them in the bottom of my sleeping bag, and I drove my prospecting pick into one of the cypress trees so I could reach it from my bed. I also put the rifle alongside me inside my sleeping bag. I fully intended to stay awake all night to find out who my visitor was, but I must have fallen asleep. I was awakened by something picking me up. I was half asleep, and at first, I didn't remember where I was. As I began to get my wits together, I remembered I was on this prospecting trip and in my sleeping bag. My first thought was, this must be a snow slide, but there was no snow around my camp. Then it felt like I was tossed on horseback, but I could feel whoever it was was walking. I tried to reason out what kind of animal this could be. I tried to get at my sheath knife and try to cut my way out, but I couldn't get a hold of it. The rifle was in front of me. I had a good hold of that, and I had no intention to let go of it. After what seemed like an hour, I could feel we were going up a steep hill. I could feel myself rise from every step. What was carrying me was breathing hard and sometimes gave a slight cough. I knew this must be one of the mountain Sasquatch giants the Indian had told me about. I was in a very uncomfortable position. It was very hot inside. It was lucky for me this fellow's hand was not big enough to close up the whole bag when he picked me up. There was a small opening at the top. Otherwise, I may have choked to death. Now he was going downhill. I could feel myself touching the ground at times, and at one time, he dragged me behind him. I was wishing he would get to his destination soon. I could not stand this type of transportation much longer. I tried to estimate distance and directions. As near as I could guess, we were about three hours of traveling. 
I had no idea when he started as I was asleep when he picked me up. Finally, he stopped and let me down. Then he dropped my pack. I could hear the cans rattle. Then I heard chatter. Some kind of talk I didn't understand. I got my head out and got some air. I tried to straighten my legs and crawl out, but my legs were completely numb. I could not see what my captors looked like. It was still dark. I could hear now it was at least four of them. They were standing around me and continuously chattering. I had never heard of Sasquatch before the Indian told me about them, but I knew I was right among them now. But how to get away from them? That was another question. I got to see the outline of them now as it began to get lighter. I got my boots out from the sleeping bag and tried to stand up. I found that I was wobbly on my feet, but I had a good hold of my rifle. I asked, What do you fellows want with me? Only some more chatter. It was getting lighter now, and I could see them quite clearly. Two big and two little ones. They were all covered with hair and no clothes on at all. I could now make out mountains all around me. I looked at my watch. It was 4.25 a.m. They look like a family. Old man, old lady, and two young ones. A boy and a girl. The boy and the girl seemed to be scared of me. The old lady did not seem too pleased about what the old man dragged home. But the old man was waving his arms and telling them what he had in mind. They all left me then. I tried to reason our location and where I was. I could see now that I was in a small valley or basin about eight or ten acres surrounded by high mountains. There was a V-shaped opening about eight feet wide at the bottom. That must be the way I came in. But how will I get out? The old man was now sitting near this opening. I moved my belongings up close to the west wall. There were two small cypress trees there, and this will do for a shelter for the time being, I thought, until I find out what these people want with me and how to get away from here. I really wanted some hot coffee, but I had no wood. Also, nothing around here that looked like wood. I had a good look over the valley from where I was, but the boy and girl were always watching me from behind some juniper bush. I opened my coffee tin and emptied the coffee in a dish towel and tied it with the metal strip from the can took my rifle and the can and went looking for water. On my way back, I noticed where these people were sleeping. On the east side wall of this valley was a shelf in the mountainside with overhanging rock. The floor was covered with lots of dry moss and they had some kind of blankets woven of narrow strips of cedar bark packed with dry moss. They looked very practical and warm, no need of washing. The first day, not much happened. I had to eat my food cold. The young fellow was coming nearer to me and seemed curious. My one snuff box was empty, so I tossed it toward him. When he saw it coming, he sprang up quick as a cat and grabbed it. He went over to his sister and showed her. They found out how to open and close it, and they spent a long time playing with it. Then he trotted over to the old man and showed him, and they had a long chatter. Next morning, I made up my mind to leave this place even if I had to shoot my way out. I rolled up my sleeping bag, put that inside my pack, and swung the sack on my back, injected the shell into the barrel of my rifle, and started for the opening in the wall. The old man got up, held up his hands as though he would push me back. I pointed to the opening. I wanted to go out, but he stood there pushing towards me and said something that sounded like, Zuga, Zuga. 
I backed up. I didn't want to get too close. I thought, if I had to shoot my way out, a 30-30 might not have much effect on this fellow. It might make him mad. I only had six shells, so I decided to wait. There must be a better way than killing him. I thought, I could make friends with the young fellow or the girl. They might help me. If I could only talk to them. I went back to my campsite to figure out some other way. Then I thought of a fellow who saved himself from a mad bull by blinding him with snuff in his eyes. So I decided the next time I give the young fellow my snuff box to leave a few grains of snuff in it, he might give the old man a taste of it. The following day, I did not see the old lady until about 4 p.m. The young fellow went up the mountain to the east that day. He climbed better than a mountain goat. He picked some kind of grass with long, sweet rods. He gave me some one day, and it tasted very sweet. I gave him another snuff box with about a teaspoon of snuff in it. He tasted it, then went to the old man. He licked it with his tongue. They had a long chat. I made a dipper from a milk can. I threw one over to the young fellow that was playing near my camp. He picked it up and looked at it. Then he went to the old man and showed it to him. Then I took a chew of snuff, smacked my lips, said, Mmm, that's good. The young fellow pointed to the old man, said something that sounded like, Ook. I motioned with my hands for the old man to come to me. I had now been there six days. If only I could get the old man to come over to me, getting him to eat a full box of snuff, that would kill him for sure. The young fellow was by this time quite friendly. The girl would not hurt anybody. I'm sure if I could get the old man out of the way, I could easily have brought this girl out with me to civilization. But what good would that have been? I would have to keep her in a cage for public display, and I don't think we have any right to force our way of life on other people, and I don't think they would like it. The young fellow might have been 11 to 18 years old and about 7 feet tall and might weigh about 300 pounds. He had wide jaws and narrow forehead that slanted upwards. The hair on their heads was about six inches long. The hair on the rest of their body was short and thick in places. Nowadays, the old lady could have been anything between 40 to 70 years old. She was over seven feet tall and had to weigh about 500 to 600 pounds. She had very wide hips and a goose-like walk. She was not built for beauty or speed. Some of those lovable braziers and uplifts would have been a great improvement on her looks and her figure. The man's eye teeth were longer than the rest of the teeth, but not long enough to be called tusks. The old man must have been near eight feet tall, big barrel chest and a big hump on his back, powerful shoulders. His biceps on upper arm were enormous and tapered down to his elbows. His forearms were longer than common people have, but well proportioned. His hands were wide. The palm was long and broad and hollow like a scoop. His fingers were short in proportion to the rest of his hand. His fingernails were like chisels. The only place they had no hair was inside their hands and the soles of their feet and upper part of the nose and eyelids. If the old man were to wear a collar, it would have to be at least 30 inches. I was watching the young fellow's foot one day when he was sitting down and the soles of his feet seemed to be padded like a dog's foot and the big toe was longer than the rest and very strong. I don't think this valley was their permanent home. I think they move from place to place as food is available in different localities. They might eat meat, but I never saw them eat meat or do any cooking. I think this was probably a stopover place and the plants with sweet roots on the mountainside might have been in season this time of year. They seemed to be most interested in them. But what do they want do they with, want me? with me? Not that I was mistreated in any way. I can't stay here indefinitely. I will soon have to make a break for freedom. 
One consolation was that the old man was coming closer each day and was very interested in my snuff. Watching me when I took a pinch, he seemed to think it was useless, only putting it inside my lips. One morning after I had my breakfast, both the old man and the boy came and sat down only 10 feet away from me. This morning, I made coffee. I had saved up all the dry branches I found and some dry moss and used all the labels from cans to start a fire. I got my coffee pot boiling and it was strong coffee too. The aroma from boiling coffee was what I think brought them over. I was smacking my lips, pretending it was even better than it really was. I pulled out a full box of snuff, took a big chew. Before I had time to close the box, the old man reached for it. I was afraid he would waste it. I held onto the box, intending him to take a pinch, like I just had. Instead, he grabbed the box and emptied it into his mouth, swallowed it in one gulp. Then, he licked the box inside with his tongue. After a few minutes, his eyes began to roll over in his head. He was looking straight up. I could see he was sick. He grabbed my coffee can that was quite cold by this time and emptied that in his mouth, grounds and all. That did no good. He stuck his head between his legs and rolled forward a few times away from me. Then he began to squeal like a stuck pig. I grabbed my rifle. I said to myself, this is it. If he comes for me, I will shoot him plumb between the eyes. But he started for the spring. He wanted water. The young fellow ran over to his mother. Then she began to squeal. I started for the opening in the wall, and I just made it. The old lady was right behind me. I fired one shot at the rock over her head. I guess she had never seen a rifle before, because she turned and ran inside the wall. I injected another shell in the barrel of my rifle and started downhill, looking back over my shoulder every so often to see if they were coming. I was in a canyon and must have made three miles in some world record time. I decided to climb the ridge ahead of me. I would have a good view of this canyon so I could see if the Sasquatch were coming after me. I stopped soon after to look back to where I came from, but nobody was following me. As I came over the ridge, I could see Mount Baker. Then I knew I was going in the right direction. I was hungry. I was tired. I had a good view of the mountainside, and if the old man was coming, I had the advantage because I was up above him. To get to me, he would have to come up a steep hill. And that might not be so easy after stopping a few 30-30 bullets. I had made up my mind this was my last chance, and this would be a fight to the finish. I rested here for two hours. I made it down to the creek at the bottom of this canyon. I felt I was safe now. I made a fire between two big boulders, roasted a grouse, and the next morning I woke up, I was feeling terrible. My feet were sore from dirty socks. My legs were sore from so much climbing and hiking and running. I was not too sure I was going to make it up that mountain. After about two hours, I got down to the heavy timber and sat down to rest. I could hear a motor running hard at times and then stop. I listened to this for a while and decided the sound was from a gas donkey. Someone was logging in the neighborhood. I finally made it to them and I told them I was a prospector and I was lost. I didn't like to tell them that I had been kidnapped by a Sasquatch. As if I had told them, they probably would have said, he's crazy too. Why did you keep this story to yourself for 30 years? Because you didn't want to be thought to be a nut? 
Well, uh, I try to tell sometimes, you know, in camp, but they just laugh at you and they wonder what you've been drinking and all that, you know. That was my last prospecting trip and my only experience with what is known as Sasquatch. I know that in 1924, there were four Sasquatches living. There may not be many, but there are some. Hey, all you wild men and mountain devils, welcome back to your favorite podcast, That Would Be Rad, a podcast that majors in 80s and 90s nostalgia, comic culture, all things paranormal, and minors in retro video games, tabletop RPGs, pre-internet mysteries, and raising our kids to be half as cool as we were back in the 80s. I'm your host, Tyler Bentz, and this is your other host, Woody Brown. What's up, dude? Man, uh, what a compelling story. Oh, yeah, big time. I mean... I'm just kind of blown away by this guy in general. Mm-hmm. But one thing I, I think I wanted to mention out of the gate before we go any further is this. You know, what you just heard, listener, was Albert Ostman's actual, like, words from him mm-hmm. via a, like, an interview done by John Green, who we will talk about in just a little while, oh, yeah. who was an important figure in 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 Bigfoot history. Who I had, I had never even heard of John Green. Which, once I started learning about him, it's kind of insane that you haven't, honestly. Uh-huh. And, you, you know, it's one of those names, I mean, John Green, John Smith, you know, whatever. Who it's kind of like a name. <laughs> Gold jacket, green jacket, who gives it? No, it's like one of those names that I think can easily kind of just, you know, melt into the pages mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. But he's a huge figure and, and I can't wait to talk about him. But, I say that to say that, you know, Ostman in his interview, which was, you know, done in, I think, uh, the 70s. No, no. Yeah, what was the date on that exactly? This excerpt that you heard was from a book called Sasquatch, The Apes Among Us, which is by John Green. Mm. And it was released in 1978. The reason I bring that up is because, you know, Ostman kind of refers to the, the, the terminology is just different for a lot of different things, one of them being, you know, the use of the word Indian. We didn't want to change it because, you know, these are his words and stuff. One of the things that I noticed while, you know, reading this story is in this specific interview, there's really not a whole lot of context in terms of British Columbia. Mm -hmm. You know, John Green, who, again, we'll talk about in, in a little while, he also comes from that area of of Canada. And so I think to them, it may not have been that important to explain, but I wanted to kind of like dig into what this area looked like, you know, so I could get more of a a visual representation as, you know, we were putting together the time capsule and, and also just out of just pure curiosity, right? Well, when you look this place up, not only do I immediately want to go there and just explore, it's just absolutely gorgeous Mm-hmm. landscape i mean yeah. huge mountains big giant forests tons and tons of wildlife mm-hmm. and even now in 2021 it's super intriguing to me it's still very like untouched you know mm-hmm. in terms of civilization and, and um buildings kind of making their way out to this remote area yeah. still remote you know almost literally 
a hundred years later. We're only a few years shy of this being like a hundred years ago. And I can only imagine the land back then was even more remote and the the ways to get there are even more remote. Oh yeah. So Yeah, there's no there's no roads. There's no No, I mean if you if you try to put into Google Maps how like directions to the Toba inlet, you know, and I did, (laughs) there's no it just says, sorry, no route. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and so where it's located, it's just about, I would say, maybe 50 to 100 miles or so away from Vancouver. And it's northwest of Vancouver, mm-hmm. this this area. Again, super remote. You've got to check out pictures of this area. It's just absolutely beautiful because if Bigfoot exists, this is an area where there's going to be a higher probability of just being able to not be disturbed by humans or anything like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I was doing some of the research, I kind of wanted to get a reference as well. Like, you know, when we think of sort of remote areas, we think of the Amazon, which obviously is, you know, this lush uh, rainforest that's sort of protected by this, like, canopy up above, and it's just massive. Well, looking into this, uh, and I didn't know this, but in the heart of uh, British Columbia, it's this thing called the Great Bear Rainforest. And it's literally a 40,000 mile, 40,000 square mile expanse of uh, basically old growth woods. And it's the largest that's left in the world. And so, you know, they're still discovering a ton of different species every single year in the Amazon. So, you know, who's, I mean, this, this place is bigger than that as far as you know, that's as far as being sort of a complete, sort of un, uh, sort of unaltered area. Uh, yeah. I mean, this place is massive, and you know, one of the things that all the, you know, not to jump right in, but like one of the things that a lot of the your classic sort of bigfooters get into is they they say, well, there's not enough, there's not enough food, there's not enough vegetation, there's not enough this or that. But there actually is. I mean, there's a ton of sort of coastline. There's a ton of fish. There's a huge population of like clam beds, a lot of areas with that, a lot of wildlife, a ton of bears, a ton of um, deer and a bunch of other more large game. So I think, just like you're saying, I think if there's anywhere on earth that you're going to find Sasquatch, it's pretty much here. Yeah. And I mean, like the thing is to one of the objections that is common, like you said, is kind of like, well, there's just not enough to eat there. Well, I mean... There's also theories that, well, okay, maybe Bigfoot's vegetarian. And, and Albert Otzman, in his story, kind of, that's his assumption, you yeah. know, because he keeps on explaining, like, these these sweet little, like, grasses and roots that they're eating. And perhaps even his sort of idea is that, you know, potentially they are somewhat nomadic in terms right. of kind of... Sort of scavenging Moving around. around. Yeah, and which you would have to do, even if you were just, let's say, primitive human, to follow the wildlife, you know, mm-hmm. um, because in the hard winters and stuff like that, I mean, you're not going to be able to locate a lot of vegetation if you're vegetarian. And some skeptics will say, well, you know, how do they... How is it possible that, you know, there are these big creatures that are vegetarian? Would that be able to sustain them and all this kind of stuff? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of science behind even humans um being more optimal actually on a on a fully vegan diet truly so yeah for sure um you know another thing that struck me about otzman as we get into this is his sense of adventure you know i'm I'm telling you listener please look up this area of british columbia 
when you do, you're going to see just what we're talking about, how remote and how absolutely beautiful the area is, especially since there's just not a lot of places like this that exist in the world really anymore. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this guy who, you know, was a young buck who essentially just, you know, worked with his hands and he was a construction worker and, you know, for his time off, his quote unquote vacation, he decides to go out on this gold mining expedition all by himself Mm -hmm. into the wilderness, fully prepared to hunt, make his own shelters, all of that stuff. That's his vacation. You know, whenever I try to get my wife to just go to, you know, a camping spot in a state park seven miles from our house, Mm -hmm. it's not her idea of vacation. And I'm talking about, I get everything set up. I'm the one, you know, like I love camping so much that I'm like, don't worry, I'll do everything. Yeah. Even then. You do love it. Oh my gosh, dude, I, yeah. I love it. You know, less and less now that, uh, you know, we're getting into stories like this. But <laughs> um, the fact that this guy went out there, I mean, that's, to me, that is the true, sen- that's, that's the true sense of adventure, you know? Mm-hmm. Like he's going out there. He's not like doing it with a bunch of buddies, which is a whole nother thing that would be fun too. But he that's how much he loves this kind of stuff and mm-hmm. I, I don't know that just struck me as like man that's really really cool that he was uh that he was into that stuff yeah i mean uh you know a little about him i mean basically you know lived in a small town in sweden uh at age 20 hopped on a boat in 1913 sailed from glasgow to canada you know because he had heard rumors of this gold rush and he had also heard that you know obviously there's more work and so he gets there, lives within this area. I'm sure he gets sort of accustomed to the land and the area and all that. And then, you know, like what he said, he, he's like, well, I think I need a vacation. I'm going to get an Indian guide to take me to, a, you know, an extremely remote area, drop me off for, you know, I have an 80-pound pack on my back, and which he kept saying. What, what was he saying? Pack, pack sack. <laughs> yeah, pack sack. Uh, yeah, if we were doing a, a drinking game, uh, pack sack would definitely be be part of that. I think I I think I kind of ended up editing that a little bit with wow. how I was reading it and just called it the pack from because we couldn't every time I said pack sack I just we both just laughed so much that I I just well that that and then he would say instead of porcupine he would say porkies porky that was pretty funny yeah um, but was. yeah I mean this dude had an eighty pound you know pack on his back and he's just out in the middle of nowhere just just hiking and. I mean, that's pretty awesome. I mean, he's like a Viking. Yeah. Kind 100%. of, you know, like he's a modern day Viking. Mm-hmm. That sense of adventure got him on a ship to, to a, I mean, and I know this is an episode about Bigfoot, but I'm going to harp a little bit on the fact that back then it was so different and, and traveling globally was so different that in and of itself was an adventure, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you never knew what kind of dangers you were going to run into. And, you, you know, you just get on a boat and then like a month later or whatever. Yeah you're you're in america or and i think he did land in new york first and then immigrated into canada right you're right yeah Mm -hmm. and then and then i think he became a canadian citizen but even still it's like canada and maybe it's because we're from the states man like i don't know canada there's several places around the world that have always just kind of seemed somewhat like you know, mysterious and, and, and kind of magical in certain ways because of the, the wild, the flora and fauna Mm -hmm. that exist there. Canada's one of those places to me, you know, you've got like huge moose and like 
big old, I mean, just big bears and all this kind of stuff. And porkies. And porkies. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, I'm a big fan of, uh, which this is like such a guy thing to say, between uh, Oak Island and, uh, or the legend of Oak Island or whatever, and uh, Alaskan bush people. Yeah, that whole area is just, is stunning, especially like the, the, like what he was talking about, sort of that mythological concept of like the great north, you know, it's like mm-hmm. just so remote and so, I guess so harsh really too. But I mean, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. if you're living there, you know, that's just kind of the norms. It's kind of like, yeah. you know, the humidity for us here down in Georgia in the summer. Yeah. It's kind of like one of those areas that to me, it, it, it's like a, it's a great equalizer, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are. You have to have a certain set of skills yeah. to be able to survive. And and then once you're in that wilderness, you're basically at its mercy, whether it's the weather or the animals that uh, that occupy it. Which have you seen, um, and I'm getting off topic here, but have you seen the show Alone? Oh, my gosh. You've seen dude. it? Yes. How have we not talked about um, this? I know, man. It's like one of my favorite shows of oh, all time. Oh, it's amazing. But there was a season where they were in British Columbia, right? I think so. And what, like season three or something yeah, like that? Something I like think that. so, man. Whatever they're in the, in the, uh, and then, dude, okay. <sighs> here we go again, mm-hmm. off topic mm-hmm. here. But if you haven't seen the, the show alone, I believe there's either one season on Netflix. I think so, yeah. And that's how I saw it initially. It's all amazing. I can really speak on is that season that's available on Netflix. It's incredible. What's neat about it and kind of what separates it in terms of like reality TV survival situations. And kind of what it make to me makes it the leader of of all that stuff mm-hmm. is instead of it just being like Tom is a bill you know Tom is a graphic designer from Chicago Illinois hey man, and I'm a Fred designer. and Su- and Susan is a uh, insurance agent there we go now, mm-hmm. now we're even mm-hmm. um, these people do live different lives but for the most part they're they're they classify themselves as survivalists yeah, yeah. and so they're going into these remote I mean like ultra remote locations oh, yeah. with all of these survival skills and and so like the first episode they're showing you kind of what all these people can do and we're talking everything from like b- literally building shelters from nothing mm-hmm. no matter where they're like dropped off and they're all dropped off separately and their locations are so remote that a helicopter has to be the one to come and get them if they have some sort of medical issue yeah. it's just an incredible show and I, and I think they're they're separated like 10 miles from each other yeah, I mean, maybe even more. Maybe I'm more, Because sure. yeah. there's, like, there's no real risk of them, like, kind of Running interacting in. with each other mm-hmm. or accidentally, like, hunting. And it's cool, too, because you're you're only allowed to bring certain items. And, yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating. I think you and have, like, we, you have 25 items, maybe. Yeah, and you have to pick from a list. And then there's, like, some basic stuff that everybody can bring. And then you have to choose this or that kind of scenario mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And... It is just fascinating, and I highly, highly recommend checking that out because, again, it kind of gives you that context of what we're talking about today. And, you know, it's interesting. You said, One of the first things he's talked about is, of course, meeting that uh, gentleman, the elder, mm-hmm. who was a First Nations people. Yeah. Um, we're, we're just going to say Indian because yeah. that's what he's referred just, to, and I have a lot of Cherokee just, blood in me, and every yeah. quote-unquote Indian that you've ever talked to is like, just call, I'm, I'm an Indian. Yeah. And he is the, this, this is his introduction mm-hmm. to Sasquatch mm-hmm. and stuff. And so, and he was, he was actually pretty, pretty like serious about it. Like I, I read where he, 
he was really kind of trying to impart on Albert, like, hey, no, this is a real thing. And and Albert just kept saying, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. And if there was anything like a hairy wild man, because again, we didn't, you know, this was pre calling it a Bigfoot, calling it a Sasquatch. So, you know, that they were just wild men or hairy giants, especially in that area. So his whole thing was like, if they were real, they died out a long time ago. He was really kind of mm. not scared for him, but like, hey, man, you need to take this serious. Right. Which is interesting, too, because once I kind of get into a little more. Well, get into it. Okay. Well. Um, like, tell us a little bit about, like, I'm interested in, or I guess I would say part of the allure to me in places like Canada and British Columbia and, and heck, even South America and stuff are the different, you know, tribes yeah. of, of people mm-hmm. and stuff. And, and and both you and I haven't both um, gone to the Bigfoot Museum here in Georgia oh, yeah. in Blue Ridge. We got to see a lot of that sort of art mm-hmm. from the Pacific Northwest, but also in our area and stuff. Did you, what'd you find in terms of that lore that existed, for example, before Albert Ostman made his way into that, uh, into that area? Well, first, let's, uh, let me read an excerpt from a book called The Wandering Artist by a frontier artist named Phil, or Paul Kane from back in March 26, uh, 1847, where he says, When we arrived at the mouth of the Cataputal River, 26 miles from Vancouver, I stopped to make a sketch of the volcano, Mount St. Helens. Distant, I suppose, about 30 to 40 miles, this mountain has never been visited by either whites or Indians, the latter assertion that it is inhabited by a race of beings of a different species who are cannibals and whom they hold in great dread. Although I have never personally encountered a Sasquatch, there is ample proof that hairy giants formerly inhabited the Chehalis district in considerable numbers. Its ancient name, the Place of the Wild Men, was until recently accepted as an echo of primitive superstitions. But the accidental discovery a few years ago of two crude cave dwellings confirmed the Indian legend that the later troglodytic of this region was the abode of human beings of huge stature. So that's like, yeah. that's pretty Dude. fascinating. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and again, this is back in, this is March 26th, 1847. So this is, this is long Jeez. before. Yeah. In the research, I also ran across an article in a popular magazine called McLean's, which it's kind of like a Time magazine. It's still going strong currently. It's a big Canadian publication. But it was written by the infamous uh, J.W. Burns, which he's kind of a he's kind of an unsung legend in, you know, sort of Bigfoot lore, especially in that area. In British Columbia, he was a guy that was and I don't know if this is like an official title or whatever, but he was called an Indian agent uh, of the Chehalis district of British Columbia. Uh, and he, he was around in like the 40s. But anyway, he wrote this article called uh, British Columbia's Hairy Giants. He goes on to speak of, you know, more modern encounters, which, I mean, modern to him is, you know, 1929 at the time, as well as ancient folklore of the Hairy Giants, tracing all the way back to the, like, the beginnings of the, the Salish Indians' oral history and traditions. But they speak of... Uh, two tribes, basically. One tribe is of like a large, somewhat hairy wild men or wild Indians, as they called them. Mm -hmm. They called like both tribes wild Indians, which is interesting. And then another that kind of leans more into like the cannibalistic eight type man. And that was that was the interesting thing to me because, you know, the Salish Indians and a lot of the other sort of smaller tribes and encampments around the area they had this uh, this phrase that they would call like uh, bukwas, 
and they were these they were like wild men basically and the whole you know they would they would create these these tribal sort of garb and um and tribal like masks and all of them would sort of depict either sort of a human more of a human kind of thing which would always sort of have a uh, sort of a peaceful look on his face he would have like a larger brow sort of big wide features but there was all you know and then there was always like this sort of more ape-like which you know later on would lean into like the the, the theory that you know bigfoot is a uh, descendant of gigantopithecus mm. but you know later on you know there's this legend that's called the gorillas of mount st helens that i think were kind of born out of that idea of like the mountain devil or right. the mount st helens skakum they would call them which is basically a man-eating ape. And the tribes believe that they were a race of beings of different species that were, you know, kind of like the darker kind of thing. So, so all that to say, what I kind of sort of draw from all this is I think, you know, and I could be way off, but I feel like they had these two sets of distinct sort of masks and costumes for their, their tribal sort of ceremonial dances and and gatherings and you know they bring out these masks that look like sort of like a man but like kind of furry all over kind of big and then they bring out this other one that's you know and and that mask is never menacing at all but then this other mask which kind of looks like a gorilla or some kind of ape you know sort of blended with a human is it's always sort of snarling and it's menacing and it's and so to me that kind of sounds like a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And um, and then maybe the other one is more of like a Neanderthal or like the missing link, like primitive man, you know, maybe. Man. Maybe I'm well, wrong, dude, but I, it, it is really I, interesting that there's there's they've always kind of had these two sort of distinct like wild Indian tribes. Yeah. I mean, another thing that is crazy to me as you were saying all this that it just made my mind go click was – Okay, you said there was a the Mount St. Helens what you, mountain gorillas. Well, yeah, there, there was apparently there's like a legend around there called the gorillas of Mount St. Helens. Now that completely reminds me. In fact, it's kind of crazy that this event that we talked about today with Albert Otzman occurred the same year, 1924, as the Ape Canyon incident, which is yeah. kind of pretty close to Mount St. Mm-hmm. Helens, right? And yeah. with Fred Beck and all those guys, yeah, also gold mine or gold prospectors, and I mean, it's just crazy. So you've got these Native Americans, these, these cultures that, you know. Well, they're not American. Fu- well, <laughs> in Mount St. Helens. Indigenous people. Yeah, you've got these indigenous tribes that have existed long before the European settlements came in. Mm-hmm. And they have these legends that exist mm-hmm. long before some random gold miner or. Fur trappers. Ran- or yeah, fur trappers or whatever. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just insane to me that this kind of stuff exists long before any kind of like newspaper was involved. Oh, yeah. You know, because I think one of the things that you and I have talked about before, and I'm sure a lot of folks, especially if they're skeptical about all this kind of stuff, have thought about is, well, maybe these people are just kind of coming out of the woodwork because they want to get famous. In fact, I think that's one of the biggest sort of criticisms about this account in general is that Albert Ostman didn't even tell anybody about it until 30 years later. Yeah, 1957. And and I looked into that too, and his whole thing was like, uh, you know, out of his mouth, he said, well, I didn't want to be 
called a nut. And, right. and you know, we, we, Woody and I have talked about this before, but the idea that, like, they didn't have social media. They didn't have just media in general was just such a different kind of thing back then. So, honestly, if you're a blue-collar guy, if you work in construction or you're, or, you know, like Fred Beck, you're sort of a prospector, coming out and, and you know, sort of fabricating this story of, oh, I saw this Bigfoot in the woods and I was terrified in a cabin or I was kidnapped for six days. That's not going to get you many points. That All that's going to do is ostracize you and make you look like you're insane. Right. And so and, I, I thought that was cool and, and similar to, uh, you know, kind of like with Fred Beck where he, he waited, I don't know, I think it was 30-something years also until he came out with his story. I think one of the other guys talked about it but he didn't really do an official kind of interview until later maybe even on like his deathbed and and the only reason he did that was because his son kind of had persuaded him to do it but yeah that's that's pretty wild um what one thing that i did think was interesting woody and it is cool that we're kind of talking about fred beck and the the ape canyon incident is you know when you think of bigfoot if you're into this kind of thing and you're kind of versed in like the lore and everything, there's really not that many, um, there's not that many encounters of like violent Bigfoot. I mean, occasionally you'll have, you know, like throwing rocks or like tree mm-hmm. knocks and stuff. And, but, but almost that just kind of seems like, Hey, you're trading on my area. Yeah. Like, like a territorial, territorial, sort of, right. You know, showing like yeah. take it easy, like posturing, you know, almost. Mm-hmm. And, it's it is interesting because you know you read about all of these like indigenous tribes and they're talking about like these like mountain devils and and I understand that you know that from the beginning of human you know nature you know na- human nature from the very beginning is like oh we don't understand that thing it's a mountain devil or it's a ghost yeah right and so I do understand that but but I think there's something I think that's like not giving enough credit to those those early people of that area in, mm-hmm. you know, they clearly were smart enough to know that like, okay, there's these two separate sort of things. And one is basically a mountain devil and it's like an ape type animal that eats people, which is an interesting tie into the Wendigo, which is, you know, another sort of uh, cryptid in Canada. And the whole deal behind that is, well, if, if you're cannibalistic and you eat another human, you know, there's the possibility that you can turn into a Wendigo, which is kind of like a Bigfoot meets werewolf. It's also oh, in Alpha Flight comics, but man, but I, I just it is interesting that like I've never heard of a cryptid that had a tie-in with like cannibalism, but then you have two sort of separate sort of entities in folklore that both have to do with like cannibalism, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. But also, but what I was saying, all that to say, is, sorry, I'm rambling, but. All that to say is from what these these natives describe, the one, you know, wild Indian, sort of the the mountain devils and stuff, that sounds an awfully lot like what Fred Beck and his men discovered. I mean, that was like, yes, Albert Osman was like kidnapped and and all that, but but he wasn't harmed. But what Fred Beck and his guys were... I mean, they it were really seemed like those were aggressive. Yeah, they were right? coming. Like they were trying to get into that cabin. Yeah, and were they trying to come and, in to eat them? Were they trying to? 
you know, are they cannibals? Right. And if and if you're listening to our podcast for the first time and this is your first episode with us, we apologize. first off, welcome. <laughs> but when we're talking about Fred Beck and the Ape Canyon incident, fortunate for for you and and if you know you're a previous listener but you you know want to get reacquainted with that mm-hmm. uh, story, you can listen to our episode that is just about the Ape Canyon incident and learn more about Fred Beck mm-hmm. and and um you know, what happened there. Yeah, it's another good one. You know, what, what's cool about this one too that makes it unique to me is you never, aside again, and there's so many similarities here, but you never really hear a lot about anybody kind of coming in contact with Bigfoot or having an experience with Bigfoot where there's more than one. Mm-hmm. You know, right. for the most part, they see one in the distance. This was so unique in that like, you know, seemingly it was like a little family unit. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Man, what, I mean, it's just that alone is fascinating to hear some of the descriptions that Ostman said in terms of observing their sleeping arrangements and how there was some skill involved in like weaving a blanket that uh, that they made out of things like moss and, right. and all that kind of stuff. It's like it's that intelligence level kind of like primates that with the use of simple tools and, and things like that, they could build shelters. Now, Trust me, I know other animals can build shelters. Mm-hmm. I mean, birds and cats, um, whenever like feral cats, whenever they're having babies, they build like a little cat nest. The reason I know about that you is cat nest? in other... Yeah, dude. Is that a thing? Listen, th- yes, it's a real thing. Oh, my gosh. Be- and the only reason I know that, or they call it like a cat cave, is because Garfield, uh, the cat that we that just wandered up onto our back deck uh, several months ago... Loves lasagna. Well, he loves lasagna <laughs> and also we find out that garfield is not a he Ooh. garfield is she and Jingle. garfield just had kittens no yeah although that. we don't know where the kittens are because she basically Ooh. only wanders up to eat and then like has a little hiding place and so i did like again sorry about getting off the rails here but i did a bunch of research on like feral cat behavior and all this kind of stuff hmm. anyway all that to say i know that other animals can build shelters. This seemed a little bit like next level stuff, right, right? Right. And I just, it was just so fascinating to me, like his interactions with the young boy and the young girl Bigfoot, and then like his <laughs> his nineteen um, twenties sort of perception of the female Bigfoot, and how you know, I just thought it was so funny when he said that she wasn't built for beauty. Or speed. Yeah, she she and had like wide hips and could have could have benefited from wearing a a brazier. <laughs> I mean, Osman coming in with a burn, coming and, in hot, and, and take it easy, bro. Man. Well, w- one thing too before we move on, you, you know, you're talking about primates like building nests and setting up places. Apparently, too, I think it it should be noted that like they they had a setup where there was kind of one way in and one way out. It wasn't really like a cave per se but i think he sort of explained it as like sort of i don't know if it was like between like rocks or in like this mm-hmm. like little yeah. area but but and that's the reason that he couldn't necessarily like get out right it was very controlled and very smart mm-hmm. um which that that is something that stood out to me too it was a very deliberate yeah. sort of uh in in terms of where they chose to to make their shelter which is really really cool now another thing that kind of didn't irk me but was kind of interesting i'll say <clears throat> is that he didn't mention any reaction that these creatures had when he made a fire to 
make coffee, mm-hmm. you know? And I just, I just thought that was interesting. Like they're dumbfounded by these dang homemade spoons that he makes, but they don't care that he's like roasting a pot over a fire. Yeah, you know? what, did, and, what did that exactly mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know if it's just something that like he just kind of left out of his telling of the story, but it seems like it would have been some sort of significant reaction enough of one that right. would have kind of, you know, I don't know, triggered him to tell us mm-hmm. what their reaction was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that I found kind of interesting, you know, I don't, I mean, maybe un- unless, I mean, I don't they've see how, but. seen, you know, I mean, I don't know. Cause it's like every animal that you can think of basically will avoid fire at all costs. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And so you think, well, maybe they've, the only thing I can wrap my head around is maybe they've observed humans enough and they're, they know what that is. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. So that, that is one thing that was kind of like, well, hmm, that's interesting. I, I wonder uh, about Which, that. Which speaking of that, that, that kind of reminds me of the, uh, man, that article that you sent about that Canadian village where they believe that Sasquatches are. Oh, man. Which I guess they were like these sort of campers were sitting around a fire and like they happened to see mm-hmm. one kind of like off in the distance like and they could see his face mm-hmm. like sort of peeking out from the Dude. firelight. I mean, just... That's crazy. That is crazy. And again, going back to, yes, I love camping, but the more we dive into this stuff the less frequently I think I'm going to be going. You know, and it's weird. It's crazy because, like I said at the top, this area is still remote. Mm -hmm. It's still wild, basically. And these kind of sightings in that area are still occurring even today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked a little bit about them earlier, but I think this is a great time for me to kind of dive in a little deeper on John Green because oh, yeah. he's such a significant piece of Bigfoot history and the way that he's kind of tied to this story and to a lot of the other ones that we've mentioned but also will talk about is is pretty incredible. Well, hey, man, let's take a break first. Hey, man, good idea. We will return after these messages. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. America's future can be determined by our dreams and our visions. It was very 
For over 200 years, there have been reports of giant man-like creatures from another dimension, another world, I don't know. The most intriguing mystery on the North American continent. You are listening to That Would Be Rad. Here's the thing about John Green. First, let me read a quote about him. I just, I read this and I thought, man, I wonder what someday someone will say about me. Hmm. So this quote says, John had a journalist's knack for facts and a statement skill for logically and eloquently articulating a compelling argument. His accumulated database established a baseline from which an informed profile of the Sasquatch could be inferred. His instructive books were instrumental in promoting a matter-of-fact consideration of the subject. He played a key role in establishing, in establishing the collection of original casts and other artifacts at the Willow Creek China Flats mm. Museum. He truly established a pragmatic foundation to the investigation of Sasquatch from which serious researchers and investigators now operate. Now, he once told a reporter, this is crazy, because remember, folks, this is all pre-internet, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He once told a reporter that he had a database of more than 3,000 sightings and track reports. Man. And so he's actually known as Mr. Sasquatch. Yeah. So he started his kind of journey into all of this kind of, uh, well, it kind of landed in his lap, if you will. So he started out as a journalist and he was first asked about Sasquatch in 1956 when the Swiss-born Rene de Hinden hmm. entered his office to ask about this two-legged upright creatures like the Abominable Snowman, or I guess some stories that were reported in the area. Mm-hmm. Dude, this is hilarious. He told DeHinden that these accounts were complete and utter nonsense. Whoa. Why? (laughs) Because he didn't believe it. Hmm. He was like, this just sounds ridiculous. But he kept on hearing and kept on hearing. Oh, you're talking about early days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Early days. I was confused. But but, but 1956, though. I mean, so it's like, yes, it's early, but how quickly his mind was changed. So he kept on hearing about these reports and... You know, it became like a situation where there was just so much of it that he couldn't ignore it, really. And He's like, so I mean, kept, I'm Mr. Sasquatch, but that's bull French Well, guy. this is before, yeah, <laughs> this is before uh, two things. One, the guy was Swedish. Oh, and, Swedish guy. <laughs> um, but this is before he was Mr. Sasquatch. So he kept on hearing about this stuff and, in fact, hearing about lore and sightings from people that he actually respected. So that was enough to trigger him to say, you know what, maybe I need to kind of take this seriously in terms of like just looking into it, even if that means to disprove it, right? Mm-hmm. So he started investigating Sasquatch reports really, really heavily in 1957, interviewing witnesses, going on site, and, and figuring things out for himself. Which, again, um, that's the year that Osman came out with his story. Mm-hmm. Yep, and he interviewed him, you know, in the late 50s mm-hmm. uh, in depth. And, I th- you know, I think that's what he included in this in this book that he wrote later. Mm-hmm. But he is credited for extending the modern history of Sasquatch back to the 1941 Ruby Creek encounter. Hmm. I've never heard of then that. In, you never heard Ruby Creek? No. Hmm. I thought you, uh, <laughs> swear I thought you'd told me about it. So oh, I'll just leave that part out. A Bigfoot fan. Then, um, so like, as you know, dude, in 1958, hundreds of large footprints were found on a logging road near Bluff Creek, yeah. California. Mm-hmm. And they're found by these like construction workers. And trust me, whenever I tell you, listener, we will dive into Bluff Creek and all these other yeah. ones. But it just blows my mind. 
so he he so first off, these footprints are found in Bluff Creek by these like construction workers that are working in the area. One guy named Jerry Crew was the one that took a plaster cast to a local newspaper as proof, and then that was when the moniker Bigfoot was born. Right. Yep. So John Green and his wife, hats off to his wife. She sounds super cool for this. They both immediately drove to investigate. So they drove down to Bluff Creek to investigate. But when they got there, the folks were like, ah, sorry, man, you're, you're, you're too late. The Bigfoot tracks actually, we kind of like smoothed out this area, this road. So Green was pretty skeptical, like, hmm, that sounds mm-hmm. kind of convenient. And in fact, like told his wife, look, I think we might have just driven for three days straight for nothing but a prank. Man. So he asked the road construction folks if he could have a look around anyway. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. So what happened next was that his wife, June, opened her car door and there was a footprint just a few feet away from their vehicle. Whoa. What's crazy is it impressed him so much that the similarity between the outline of these Bluff Creek tracks and the ones that he had, the tracings that he had of the Ruby Creek footprints were like, Super close. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. After that, he essentially became a well-known member of a loose group of Bigfoot and Sasquatch hunters and researchers that were working together like in the Pacific Northwest. He was hired by this millionaire guy from Texas named Tom Slick, yep. which we've talked about before well, and, a little bit, I think. And Tom Slick is the guy who made the expedition up to Everest to look for Yeti. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. And he, so he hired Green to track Sasquatch in, in British Columbia. Man, that's cool. And suggested to Roger Patterson he might wish to look for Bigfoot in the Bluff Creek, California area. Whoa. So, so wait a minute. Was this? This was 1958. Oh, so this was pre-Roger. So, yeah, this Gimlin, is about, uh, exactly, uh, exactly. Patterson so, Gimlin I mean, he, I don't want to give this guy too much credit, but we could basically credit him for giving those wow. guys the idea to go to Bluff Creek Dude, about nine a, years before they filmed that. That's incredible. Is that nuts? Wow. So, I mean, this guy, I'm so glad that he popped on, <laughs> popped up on our radar because the dude is very significant he, to Bigfoot lore, history, the study, all of it. He's got several, several books. I'm so blown away that I've never heard of this guy. You were right. I know, man. I'm kind of blown away that you haven't either. But, hmm. uh, you know, I wasn't going to say anything. But uh, I mean, what a poser. <laughs> anyway, uh, one of the books that you can that I found that you can get that he wrote, um, you can find it on Amazon, is called Sasquatch, The Apes Among Us. Mm. And um, I have heard of that book. What an interesting dude. Yeah. And, you know, we'll put up a cool picture in the episode artifacts on our Instagram page of him it's just a really cool picture of him interviewing Albert Ostman. And it's just it's just really, really cool. Well, I, really, really neat. I, I wonder, too, now that you kind of get into to Green's work and stuff, I wonder if, because that in my research, I found that, that the only reason that Ostman even kind of came out is because, like, other people were kind of kind of coming out and saying, hey, I've, I've witnessed this, you know, this, uh, you know, upright, biped you know creature walking around and you know like i said he always just thought that he was going to be called a nut so he just kind of kept it to himself which i mean again you know you hear like all these accounts that are just kind of the top of bigfoot lore and uh if this is a legitimate story and all this truly did happen to albert osman i mean this ranks up 
as, in my opinion, the top. I mean, I mean, my top as is is the Patterson Gimlin film, just because I think without a doubt, no matter what the the critics kind of say, no matter what the the um, the researchers that kind of try to come down on, oh, it's a guy in a suit. I think that's BS. I, I personally think it's the most like credible evidence that we have, and you know, again, if this this Osman story is true, I mean. I mean, he spent six days with them. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. And it's neat, too, because one of the things that I found was, you know, essentially Albert Osman signed <clears throat> what would be the equivalent of like a affidavit or something like a legal affidavit here in the States mm. um, stating that, you know, his statement was of, of you know, the truth. truth. And even reading some of John Green's writing about his interview with Osman, he, he he basically referred to him as like, look, he was a very, I get it, you know, like how hard it is to believe a story that somebody got carried off right. by a Bigfoot and was around a family of them and then escaped by giving them a can of snuff. Yeah. But he said that, man, he just, he was a very believable guy mm-hmm. and kind of handled his own cross-examination in good spirits and was able to answer the questions in a way that made him really believable. I mean, we've got to remember John Green isn't just, he. I mean, he didn't start his career, his life as a journalist. In fact, he was a lot more, dude. He, he ran for like office in the province mm. that he lived in. He did a bunch, he was like a sailor, like a, you know, um, hobby sailor. I mean, just all kinds, he's just a man of many talents. Mm-hmm. But he was an investigative reporter, man. It's his job to uncover yeah. the truth or disprove certain things. And so when he's interviewing Austin, he wasn't doing so and just like, hey, this seems like an interesting story. What happened? Right? He's asking him questions. He's trying to kind of dig and like Yeah, dig and maybe even potentially like up. set up some pitfalls a little bit so that if it's a false story, because mm-hmm. no journalist wants to waste their time with a false story. Oh well you know? and even worse, no journalist wants to report on a story that later comes out to be false false and then they look like an idiot. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. Hmm. Man, it's really, really awesome. And I mean, you know, I think one of the things that, that I wanted to kind of talk about before before we go was just how hilarious it is that um, that the way that he escaped. Well, two things. One, I'm glad <laughs> that he didn't have to shoot, you know, any of the, the Bigfoot. Yeah, and I love his answer to that was, was uh, you know, did, did you feel, you know, something to the extent of like, did did you ever feel like, you know, uh, like you you needed to you know use your your weapon your firearm and he was basically like no I never felt I never really felt like they were trying to hurt me which right which is kind of interesting because they did they did kind of keep him I mean kidnapped I feels like kind of strong but like you know they did sort of keep him from leaving like apparently like he would right. try to leave he would he would point at the entrance and uh, you know the dad one the the biggest one, I guess. He would say Soka Soka, which you said in the time capsule. But I thought that was really interesting. And that's mm-hmm. also, as far as I know, that's one of the few sort of up-close reported Bigfoot vocalizations, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. with the Sierra sounds. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting because for all you people, for all you folks that don't know, the Sierra sounds are the, is this sort of classic recording. I think it was in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And they're these sort of these, you know, recording of 
these Bigfoot and they're they're talking. Oh, you said recording this night. <laughs> well, I almost said recording recordings. You're like, <laughs> so I had my own Bigfoot <laughs> vocalization there. But the interesting thing about that is it's not like what you would. Let me also say this before I get into this. I think to me the like when I first started getting into this stuff, I think the more realistic, the less amount of details, the more uh, weird washed, as uh, Timothy Renner would say, stories where any of like the quote unquote sort of weird stuff, they would take it out. So everything would point to it's an upright hominid. It's a it's a relation to, you know, or a descendant of the Gigantopithecus. But as I get older, to me, the more the more the stories that have these like little elements of like it, like it doesn't make sense for somebody to make little things up. Like like the the fact that the Patterson Gimlin film, uh, the fact that she has, as they say, pendulous breast. That's just such a bizarre detail that in an era like where Bigfoot wasn't in the zeitgeist, it, it, the word wasn't in the lexicon, the the fact of somebody coming up with a costume and then and then going one step further and saying, hey, let's really make it believable and make it a female and add breast like that. That makes no sense to me. It just mm. it's one of those things that it, that it would be so far ahead of its time that there, I just feel like that's impossible. And so with Osman, some of these little things that he's saying, like he he kind of gave snuff to the the, the dad one and he was kidnapped and, you know, he was picked up in his in his sleeping bag and carried, uh, you know, miles and miles for over three hours. Like that just sounds nuts. But but at the same time, it it sounds kind of believable because it is so out there. And so, like I was saying with the Sierra sounds, it, it's one of those things where if somebody was going to fabricate these sounds that that we think at the time, so I guess the 70s, we think Bigfoot would sound like it would be like, rawr, you know, it would be more sort of mm-hmm. growls, like right. like a bear or like a... Or even like apish kind or of Or apish, right. But this, the, these recordings, it, they call it Dude. samurai chatter. And it literally yeah, sounds man. like Kurosawa, like the seven samurai. It literally sounds like samurais, like... Yeah. Oh, man, it's so... It's wild. Insane. And and the, the time that I heard them was, again, when we went to the... the uh, at the at the Bigfoot Museum here mm-hmm. in Blue Ridge, Georgia, which I'm going to plug again, and you know we're not affiliated with them in any way, but man, it is incredible. Yeah. It, it exceeded our expectations in so oh, many different amazing. ways. I mean, not only did I get a chance to listen to these Sierra sounds, but I also got to see on the wall um, what potentially is <laughs> is uh, is one of my ancestors, which is which is interesting. So I, I I just have to determine whether or not I'm a wild devil, yep, or mm-hmm. a friendly kind of hairy dude and i'm leaning more towards the friendly hairy dude same my face wife same size potentially <laughs> take... <laughs> i'm speaking scientifically here oh man i don't know how you would know that but uh <laughs> i think all in all man an absolutely fascinating tale yeah. it is one that i, I think Everyone needed to hear, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you haven't heard it before, it's super fascinating. It's super unique. And, again, like I said, it makes me want to go to British Columbia. Oh, yeah. Um, with a couple cans of snuff. And get kidnapped by Bigfoot. Yeah. Well, family of Bigfoot, even better. Yeah. One thing that – did you find this? Here we go. Here we <laughs> no, go. I know we're wrapping up. We're wrapping up. 
But I do get to ask, did you find, so I first heard about this on some podcast years ago, maybe Darkness Radio or the Paranormal Podcast with uh, Jim Harold. But I think somebody had kind of said that they thought that the reason that he was sort of being kept and was kept for so long was that, that I, I guess like the father was kind of looking to him as like basically like breeding stock for like the daughter one. Did you hear anything? Mm. I, I looked, no, I, I couldn't find I anything either, but. I didn't see that, but I was going to kind of sort of ask what your thoughts were on why yeah, they would have taken him. And then also, you know, because the first thought, if I was in the sleeping bag, mm-hmm. Um, I would have thought this thing's going to eat me. Mm-hmm. It's either going to kill me or it's going to eat yeah. me. As I kind of molded over over the last couple of days, not even sure if that's the right phrase, um, <laughs> I thought, man, I wonder if, I don't know, is it some sort of like observation thing? Is it them knowing that there's dangerous bears in the area and they're trying to protect them? Mm. Um, you know, because it's like, why else would they... Yeah. Other than what you mentioned, which is like, you know, for breeding purposes. Well, it's five generations of a large family breeding. breeding. It's weird. And like, and again, you know, uh, when we talked about doing this episode, I always remember that. And I always thought it was such a weird concept that like, okay, they're going to kidnap this guy and basically use him to breed with the daughter. And I always just thought it was so out of left field and such an odd thing. And again, I've looked, but I, mean, I looked and I can't I don't find really anything. I know what else. But, yeah. I mean, there's got to be some reason that he gets picked up at three or four in the morning. He's carried what Osman says he thinks is like anywhere up to 25 miles, mm-hmm. which I don't totally know how he would know that. But I mean, three and four in the morning, he was carried on his back at like a pretty quick speed until the sun came up. So that's, you know, several hours. Why would they go through the trouble? I mean, if if they meant him harm, they would have killed him. If they were going to use him for food, they wouldn't have carried this sleeping bag around. They just would have, would have eaten him. So it is weird. And it's like, it does make you ask the question of like, why, what, what, why was he so important that they had to carry him for miles and miles and miles through the night to this encampment and then to be sort of held hostage for six days. Man, it's crazy. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in that, that's interesting. I mean, I guess the good news there is like, you know, if you're kind of down on your luck I see where um, you're going. in terms of finding a, finding a mate, mm. well, then, I mean, head out to BC. There you go. And um, you never know. Never know. Maybe, uh, maybe you can uh, find you a handsome or beautiful Bigfoot to... Uh, <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of... Uh, Male Good or female, guy. like I love that he says, "Hey, fellas," whenever, <laughs> whenever he like pokes his head out of the sleeping bag. Oh yeah, man, he's like that's exactly how I imagined it. I mean, it's not exactly how it's written, but it's like yeah. I just imagine, you know, like Boo Boo, basically right. our, our buddy Boo Boo, yeah. uh, who played bass on our band, yada yada yada, just inching his head out and being like, like hey, fellas, like a gopher. You fellas doing all right out here? <laughs> well, look. Incredible story. Makes me really want to dig further into, you know, like the Ruby Creek stuff, the one that you didn't know so much about. Although I I do think, I didn't recognize like the Ruby Creek, but I do know, I have heard several where it's like miles and miles of of footprints. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, again, I don't know, maybe it's not this one because I'm not super familiar, but is this the one where 
you know, and it's like... Don't know anything about it, so don't ask well, me. Well, I, I know there's there's one or more of where, and I think it's like, you know, hundreds of, of yards where you see these footprints and then and then they just disappear, which yeah. is, you which know, brings, the title brings of Timothy. Me to, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I can't wait to dig into Timothy Renner's book. Mm-hmm. And um, Joshua Where Cutchin. the Footprints and Joshua Cutchin. Timothy Renner and Joshua Cutchin's book, Where the Footprints mm-hmm. End, because that is interesting. It's a concept that, you know, I don't know. I want to find out, like, why, why do they disappear? Anyway, every single week we mention how much you guys mean to us and if this is, again, your first time listening to our show, we really hope you enjoyed it. We hope you come back. Mm-hmm. But we can also tell that the listeners we have have been telling their friends and their friends mm-hmm. and their friends about us. And so week after week, we just have to take the time to say thank you so much for listening to our show. We recognize everyone has a busy life. And the fact that you take time out of yours to listen to us yeah. talk about a bunch of different things just means the world to and us. And just ramble on for hours yeah we're interrupt each other and stuff like like you just did but where is the best place tyler for people to interact with us well usually the bulk of our activity online is instagram we always have like a pretty awesome back and forth uh in the comment sections we post we always post uh, on the new episodes every monday um and then we usually have a follow-up artifact section that has photos and any sort of notes or, or references that we that we have uh you know in these stories. Uh, so yeah, usually there, feel free to shoot us a DM or if it's a more long form, like maybe you have a ghost story or an encounter with Sasquatch, whatever, feel free to shoot it to that would be radpod at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, like what he said, you know, it's like we do this because of you guys. I mean, yes, we would be rambling and talking about, you know, weird stuff on a daily basis without you, but we wouldn't be recording it. So you know, it really means a lot that you guys do come back uh, every week. So, we appreciate you, we love you, and as always, be rad. That's the way you go.
time where I just needed some sunshine You were already dead before you became a ghost You always said our future would 